a very good morning to you all, and uh, thank you once again for your friendship, your support, your encouragement. Your encouragement. Uh, the testimonies this morning were very encouraging. Uh, thank you for those who had the courage to stand up and share, uh, and thank you to Will for leading us so well this morning. Our text for this morning is from Philippians chapter 2. Uh, particularly uh, verse 6 to 11, but I'll read from verse 1. Uh, Paul writing to the Philippians, and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. One of the questions that I always ask about myself um, and uh, about all of us as human beings, is that uh, despite all that God has given us, despite all that God has endowed us with, what is it about us that despite all that, our sense of shalom or our sense of well-being remains less than adequate? What is it about us that despite all that God has blessed us with, family, relationships, material wealth. You know, for those who live in America, uh, the abundance uh, of the United States. What is it that despite all that, our sense of well-being remains less than adequate? Uh, and perhaps a leading question would be, where does true joy come from? Uh, how do we get contentment? What is it about us that despite all we have, we are never content? The story is told of a father from a very wealthy family. Uh, for us in Africa, it's either you're rich or you're poor. Uh, and so one of the rich families, the father decided to take his son on a trip to a very poor village. And the reason for doing so was in order to show his son how, people, how poor people can be. Uh, he wanted to teach his son contentment. Uh, and so they spent a couple of days and nights in the home of one of the families in the village. 
Uh, and the, ba- the boy uh, had a wonderful time. Uh, he joined the other kids when they went out to head cattle. Uh, he enjoyed swimming in the river because there was a river that passed through the village. And he thoroughly enjoyed swimming uh, in the river. Um, and uh, what he enjoyed the most was that um, he had to swim naked because you know, all the boys just you know, jumped in in the nude and so did he. He had to leave his swimming costume behind. He also enjoyed waking up in the morning to go to the fields to, to weed uh, the crops um, and found that exciting that, wow, these guys actually work. You know, they work hard for their food. And then on their return from the trip, the father asked his son, how was the trip? And the son looked at his father and said, well, it was great, dad. Uh, did you see how people, poor people can be? The father asked. Yeah, I saw everything, the boy said. So what did you learn from the trip? Asked the father. The son answered, I saw that we, we have one dog and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden and they have a river that runs through the village and has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden and they have stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard and they have the whole horizon as far as the eye can see. We have a small piece of land to live on and they have fields that go beyond sight. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, but they have their friends to protect them. With this, the boy's father was speechless. Then his son added, thanks, Dad, for showing me how poor we are. And I guess it's all about perspective, isn't it? Uh, And often the challenge with perspective is that you have to change position in order for you to see a different perspective. Otherwise, you're stuck with just one view. And I think this is what this father did. He afforded his son the opportunity to change position in order to see something totally different. And here's my favorite quote about contentment. If you're having a hard time being content, make a list of everything you have that you don't deserve, and then make a list of everything you deserve that you don't have. And that's from Eric Raymond, uh, his book, Chasing Contentment. And then another one, Jeremiah Byers, uh, in his 400-year-old Puritan classic, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he describes contentment this way. He says, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is a work of the Spirit indoors. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. In other words, contentment does not consist in getting the thing we desire, but in God's fashioning our spirits to our conditions. To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty and glory and excellence of a Christian. That man or woman who is never without a contented spirit 
truly can never be said to want much. And then he goes on to say, contentment is far more powerful than a change of circumstances. Instead of being sourced on the outside and subject to changing circumstances, biblical contentment comes from within and endures through the spectrum of circumstances. And as we read uh, Philippians, the four chapters of Philippians picture a man who actually found all this to be true. And his name is Paul. And he says this to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have become concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And Paul was writing this when he was in prison, facing possible death by execution. And he was writing something that is encouraging. The Apostle Paul He did not write the Philippians in response to a crisis. But he was writing in order to encourage them. And we see here, instead of expressing his own concerns and his own struggles, he expresses appreciation and his affection for the Philippian believers. More than any other church, as we read Philippians, the believers in Philippi offered Paul material support for his ministry. They came alongside Paul and assisted him. And his affection for these people is clear throughout the letter as he encouraged them to live out their faith in joy and unity. And Paul says this to them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Paul is living out this whatever happens himself. And that qualifies him to speak to them about their situation. Instead of dwelling on his own suffering, Paul focused his thoughts and prayers on the Lord Jesus and on the needs of his brothers and sisters in Christ. This attitude that Paul had gave him great freedom, so much that he mentions joy or rejoicing 14 times in just this one letter. A letter that was written from prison. If, if you don't know or he doesn't mention it, there's no way you would imagine that Paul was writing from behind bars. But he was. And he mentions joy or rejoicing 14 times in just this one letter. And so despite his circumstances, Paul's letter to the Philippians exudes a joy that surpasses any of his other letters. And this explains why Philippians is one of the most personal of all of Paul's letters. And so in chapter 2, he reveals the secret of true happiness and how this happiness can be obtained. And Paul talks about looking out for the interests of others. Look at verse 4. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. And Vestry says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, it comes from humility. Literally, it comes from lawliness. And this is the great opposite of a sense of entitlement. Humility is the opposite of you owe me. Paul said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That's in Romans 1 verse 14. In other words, they didn't owe him, but he owed them everything. Why? Why should Christians walk through life feeling that we owe service to people rather than them owing us? The answer is that Christ loved us and died for us and forgave us and accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made us heirs when he owed us nothing. Christ treated us as worthy of his service when we were not worthy of his service. He took thought not only for his own interests, but for ours. He counted us as greater than himself. And we read this in Luke 22, verse 27. Who is the greater, he said, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That is where our humility comes from. We feel overwhelmed by God's grace. Christians are stunned into humility. We are overwhelmed by God's grace. And so freely we have been served by our Lord Jesus. And freely we serve others. So the, the crucial relational mark of the culture of our church should be Philippians 2 verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul says, this is the mind or the mindset that we should have in life together. And this is another way of saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, one uh, preacher talking about uh, that same verse says, said, Loving your neighbor as you love yourself uh, is like ripping the skin off your body and you wrap that skin around that other person, your neighbor. And all that you wish for yourself, you wish for them. All that you want for yourself, all that you dream for yourself, you dream for them. And Paul says this is the mind or the mindset that we should have in life together. And so Paul gives, in this passage, gives us four examples uh, of this mindset. And he begins with Jesus in verses 5 to 9. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you ever struggle with humility or self-denial or serving those 
who are hard to love or those who are different from you. Think of this picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the very nature of God. He was God through and through. Our Lord himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father in John 14 verse 9. And in Colossians 1.15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is God in a way we can see and understand. And yet, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He who was equal with God did not hold it to himself. Instead, he was born of a woman, obedient to death, dying on the cross, He was stigmatized for us. He was cursed for us. This is what he did for you and me. He is the great example of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is what he did when he came to die in your place, in my place. He is the model of servanthood. In John's Gospel, he says, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You should also also wash one another's feet. And he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. John 13, verse 14 and 15. And so Jesus is the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. He is a pattern for all shepherds. And then verses 9 to 11 He says, therefore God has highly exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Another way of saying the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore God has highly exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. For what reason? Has God highly exalted Jesus? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. In other words, the father loves the son because he is obedient. The father loves to exalt the humble. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Psalm 138. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. Isaiah 57 verse 15. And so God favors the humble. And this is the law of heaven which Jesus taught on earth. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus said, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it is fitting that the one who humbled himself most deeply, our Lord Jesus Christ, The one whose obedience caused the greatest imaginable self-denial should be most highly exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
Hudson Taylor, after a lifetime of toil and suffering in China, said this to the astonishment of many who knew him. He said, I never, I never made a sacrifice. Why didn't he boast about how much he had sacrificed? Because he understood the therefore of Philippians 2 verse 9. If we suffer with him, we shall be glorified with him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. What name did Jesus receive after his resurrection that he did not have before? Not Jesus. Jesus is precisely the name of the humble servant who went to Calvary. In Acts 2 verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was his lordship and messiahship, his messiahship, lordship, that was bestowed on him at his exaltation. Not that he was a messiah and lord before his resurrection. He was. But he had not fulfilled the mission of Messiah until he had died for our sin and risen again. And therefore, before his death and resurrection, the Lordship of Christ over the world had not been brought to full actuality. The rebel forces were yet undefeated. And the power of darkness held the world in its grip. And in order to be acclaimed Messiah and Lord, the Son of God had to come, defeat the enemy, and lead his people out of bondage in triumph over sin and the evil one and death. And that he did on Good Friday and on Easter. And so Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And the second example that Paul gives is himself in verses 17 to 18. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul loved this church. He loved all the churches. And he died every day to serve them. I die every day, every day he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He compared his life to a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice of their faith. In other words, Paul didn't take thought just for his own interests. He took thought for their faith and was willing to deny himself over and over and in the end die. Why? So that their faith would be strong. And then the third example is that of Timothy. And here the wording is an explicit recall of verse 4. Watch how Paul contrasts Timothy with others in verses 9 to 22. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Literally, who will be genuinely concerned for your interests, your things. For they all seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. 
Paul is saying this in the mind, he's saying this is the mind of Christ, taking thought not only for our own interests, but the interests of others. This is what drives missions, taking interest in other people's eternity to the extent that you pack up your boats and you go across borders, taking interest in other people's health, other people's living conditions, other people's unemployment, other people's family challenges, taking interest not only of your own, but the challenges of others. And listen to the contrast. They all seek their own interests. I have no one like Timothy. And then finally, the example of Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Notice how amazingly their interests dominate. He was not distressed that he was ill. Instead, he was distressed because they heard he was ill. Would they be too worried? Would they fear he died? Their interests were on his heart. And that is what his concern was all about. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, we're told. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. This is Paul writing. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Talk of loyalty. Talk of commitment to the interests of others. So four illustrations of what it means to put the interests of others first. Paul calls this the mind of Christ. Christ put our interests above his own earthly comforts and he died for us. Paul suffered every day to plant the churches that brought us the gospel. Timothy served side by side with Paul, putting the interests of others first. And Epaphroditus risked his life to complete the Philippian service to Paul. And I think this challenges our personal and family priorities. This challenges what we think about the local church and our involvement in the life of the church. It challenges what we think about the world that God has sent us to to serve. We are all challenged to look out for each other. Put the interests of your brothers and sisters first. Every morning, ask the question, how can I serve my brothers and sisters today. Put the interests of your spouse. Put the interests of your children before your own. Put the interests of your neighbor. And this is the big difference, isn't it, between Christianity and other religions. We're called upon to put the interests of our neighbor before our own. We're called upon to love our enemies. We're called upon to pray for them. We're called upon to love them as we love ourselves. And so the Lord would say to each one of us today, true joy is found in making others joyful. We're called upon to intentionally make the good of others 
the focus of our interest, the focus of our strategy, the focus of our work. And Paul says this is the key to a happy life. The key to a happy life is humility, the kind that counts others more significant than yourself. And to this, God is calling us. Let me pray for us. Lord, how we pray this morning that you work so deeply in our hearts. That we may be freed from the bondage of self-centeredness. And given the disposition to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thank you, dear God, for how you continue to demonstrate this over and over again as the missionary God who sent out his son to die for us. And you continue to send each one of us to our school, to our hospital, to our neighborhood, and to other cultures to do the same thing. To put the interests of others first before our own. We pray, dear God, that you help us to do this intentionally in obedience to you. In Jesus' name.